it's hard to match the ambitions of healthcare reform and healthcare improvement these days in the U.S. with any single initiative or trend. But arguably, accountable care organizations or ACOs probably come close. ACOs are one of the most ambitious redesigns of healthcare delivery public payers such as Medicare have invested in in years. Large insurers have gotten into the act too. While incredibly complex, and in the words of one of ACO's crafters, Don Berwick, while he was at CMS, a guess. There is something quite appealing about a program that's attempting to deliver on quality health care, care coordination, patient experience, workable financing, and cost savings, and that leaves everyone and everything whole. In other words, it's not just win-win we've got here, but potentially win-win-win-win and then some. So are ACOs off to a good start? Who's thrown in their hat? Who's watching from the sidelines? And what are they, what are we watching for? These are just some of the things we're going to learn more about and discuss on this edition of WYHI. And welcome to WYHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We offer this bi-weekly and for your later listening and convenience via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. So I want to thank you for your interest in today's program, as many of you, I suspect, are in the thick of finding your way with healthcare redesign as well. And here's IHI's John Gothier with me in our studio at IHI, and he's going to explain how to make the most of your engagement with WIHI over this next hour. John? Thanks, Madge. Uh, Just a few items to point out to help everybody make the most out of today's program. We're going to take a quick look at the chat window. If you tuned into WIHI before, you know about all the great conversation that takes place in the chat window. We keep the chat closed during the beginning of the conversation, but open it up after about 20 minutes or so for everyone to share their questions and comments. Now, once the chat's open, make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants. This allows Madge and our guests in studio to see your questions and comments, as well as everyone listening on on WebEx. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged onto the computer and listening to WIHI by streaming audio coming through speakers or headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. This format works best if you're on a high-speed connection. If you're on a slower connection, we recommend calling in on the phone. Now, if you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to WIHI admin in the chat, and that's me. A simple solution to any audio hiccup may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If the problem persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know, and I'll flash a slide with that number shortly. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on WIHI, and we need your help for that. Please take the time after the program to fill out a quick survey and let us know how we've done. Back to you, Madge. All right. Thanks, John. And I also want to put in a plug for tweeting about what you hear on WIHI, either during or after the program. If you can, please include at IHI in your tweets, and that way we can bring others from the improvement community who follow IHI on Twitter into the conversation. One of the more intriguing aspects of ACOs, as opposed to one what some may hope is a distant relative by now, remember managed care, is that ACOs are designed to transform healthcare delivery without worrying or disrupting what patients can count on in the least. And th- indeed, things are supposed to only get better. It's just that good. So is that true? Let's find out. And let me provide some brief introductions. There are longer bios on the WIHI pages of IHI.org. 
It's my pleasure to introduce and welcome Dr. Elliot Fisher. He's a professor at Dartmouth Medical School and the Director for Population Health and Policy at the Dartmouth Institute for Health Policy and Clinical Practice. He also steers the Dartmouth Atlas of Healthcare, among many other major initiatives. Welcome, Elliot. Oh, great to be here. Terrific. Elliot kindly paved the way for me to Tucson, Arizona, where we have um, Palmer or Pal Evans on the line. He's a physician and former senior vice president and chief medical officer at Tucson Medical Center, and he's now a senior advisor to Tucson Medical Center, as well as the ACO Arizona Connected Care. Welcome, Pal. Welcome, Madge. Good to be here. Terrific. And working alongside Pal, and I think by his side right now, out in Tucson, is John Friend, the Vice President for Business Development and Associate General Counsel for Tucson Medical Center and the Executive Director of Arizona Connected Care. Welcome, John. Thank you, Madge. Glad to be here. All right. Terrific. So I'm going to just do a very, very quick yes, no, show your hand, uh, or put it down. Um, eventually on WIHI, we're going to get more into some polling because we just can't resist, and it's uh, neat to sort of show kind of trends uh, as seen by WIHI participants. But this one now, John, is the chat open? Yes. Okay, John assures me it is. So here's what I'd like to ask you, just a few quick questions. How ma- Using the hand icon, which is really uh, the way of saying yes, as in raising your hand, how many of you are from organizations that are part of an ACO? Go ahead and raise your hand if you're from an organization that is now part of an ACO. I'm trying to get a sense of uh, who's our audience today. All right, the numbers, which my guests can see as well. So far we got 3032. If you're just joining us by phone, I'll try and uh, read the visuals to you. 3940. All right, I'm trying to see how far. It takes a while for everybody to get in there. Oh, okay. And some other people are chatting in yes. All right, I'm going to take a gander here uh, that we've got maybe about 50 or and change. Um, out of, I can see we're getting close to almost 600 of you on the line right now. All right, so we'll say 50. Okay, you can put your hand down now. Second question. Those of you who don't consider yourself part of an ACO, uh, well, actually, I'm sorry, second question. How many of you are from organizations that are actively moving in that direction? And I, I really mean actively as opposed to, you know, just reading about it. Actively moving in that direction. All right, I've got some named yeses here. Um, let's see, 30, 32, coming up a little bit. <clears throat> Thank you all for participating in this. It's, it's a little bit imperfect, not scientific, but helpful. All right, so that's leveling out, I don't know, that may be about 50 as well uh, when I add up all the yeses as well as the hand raises. Okay. All right, one last job for all of you. Thank you for the yeses and then the active, uh, actively looking or moving in that direction. Those of you who've joined us today who don't consider yourself part of either group, you're not part of an ACO and you wouldn't say you're actively moving in your direction, 
what's your biggest concern about an ACO? And I wish you could actually just type in, in the chat, give us just one word or one phrase. I don't need a, you know, no paragraph explanations right now. What's your biggest concern about ACOs? And that sometimes takes a little while for people to get in those responses. Okay, so our guests are going to see these as well. Post-acute care, unknown financial impact, lack of data. Somebody wrote ACOs with a question mark, behavioral health, reduced payment. As you can see, Elliot, John, and Powell, uh, people have a lot on their minds. And um, hopefully, I think we've designed a program today uh, that will hopefully cover a lot of these hot-button items, dual eligibles, transition reimbursement, chiropractic reimbursement, social rather than medical issues. Okay, this is a fabulous start. Uh, I want to thank everybody for just this early information that helps set the table for our discussion today. And John, I think what we'll do, um, maybe just for leave it open for about another minute or so, and then we'll close it, the chat down, only because sometimes that's a little distracting, and then we'll open it up again for Q&A. So I'm going to start off right now. Thank you again, everyone, for your participation. Uh, by the way, partly we do this because you can download the chat at the end of the show or get it from us from e- uh, by emailing info at IHS. And you have some of this information then yourselves. It's not just for us. So, Elliot Fisher, you are tracking up there in Dartmouth. You are tracking a lot of what's unfolding in the ACO universe. So um, I'm going to ask you to give us uh, some sense of the evaluative role that you are playing. And um, just if you have to paint a picture, how many ACOs are out there, what type, um, where are they concentrated in the country, et cetera. Thanks, Elliot. Oh, sure. Well, the questions that I'm seeing come up are just wonderful. Thank yeah, they're good. I hope, hope we can get to all of them. <laughs> there are two ways Dartmouth is involved in trying to learn as much as we can. First, we're working closely with Mark McClellan at Brookings, um, leading a learning network that we may come back and talk more about. Our friends in Tucson are members of it. Um, but that really has allowed us to work closely with providers, provider organizations of various types from small clinical practices trying to put together a network to specialty groups trying to figure out how to work with them um, to learn really about what's happening on the ground and the challenges that people face as they move into this new model, um, the legal barriers that may need to be overcome. John was particularly helpful as we were starting to launch this, you know, three or four years ago um, in, in highlighting the, the legal barriers that, organi- that needed to be broken down if this model was to succeed. So that's one way. Elliot, do you want to come forward just a little bit? For some reason, people are having a little harder time hearing you. I don't know where you are in relationship. Come forward maybe closer to your... Oh, good. So is that a little better? Is that better? seems better to me. Please let uh, John know, and we're going to close down the chat right now, so you can let WIHI admin know if you're still having problems. And Elliot will speak up and as close to (laughs) his version of the microphone phone as he can. Go ahead, Elliot. Sorry to break your flow there. Okay. Uh, No problem. I probably should have gone to our little cute radio station that Dartmouth has. (laughs) Um, so, John, I'm counting on you to interrupt me again if I'm if I'm not being clear, being loud enough. All right, all right, uh, thanks, Elliot. Um, the second way we're working on this um, is we've got you know some major federal and foundation grants to really track what's going on. Um, there, there are four basic activities we're pursuing. We're trying to keep track of all the ACOs that we can find, the new contracts that are announced, the memorandum of understanding that are established. Um, we're doing site visits uh, to many of those sites, case studies. We've published four case studies that are on the Commonwealth Fund's website that you can go read about. One of them is about our friends in Tucson. 
Uh, we've developed and are implementing right now a standardized survey of every um, organization that's participating that has an ACO contract, has a memorandum of understanding with a payer. That's with both public and private payers. Um, and finally, we're doing a fair bit of quantitative analysis of the early experience with ACOs and ACO-like models, um, such as the physician group practice demonstration, which I'm sure we will come back to. So we have also, you know, to give you a sense of how many ACOs are out there, um, we have a map that I, I sent off to John. I don't know whether he can bring it up. Um, there are Here three different flavors of programs, um, of three different flavors of federal programs. Um, and what the map will show is there are about 150. In 2009, there weren't very many. Tucson was one of those cute little dots. Um, but now there are, you know, there are over almost 250 ACOs that we've been able to identify. About 150 of those are federally sponsored ACOs under the Shared Savings Program or the Pioneer Program, which is a special demonstration, or the Advanced Payment Program, which is for a subset of the Medicare Shared Savings Program participants. Um, state programs of state Medicaid programs have launched ACOs, and we're, we're about, we have about 78 um, ACOs um, that are working with private payers under their contract, and many more that that we've heard about, but the payers have not, and the organizations have not yet announced them. And you can see from that map um, where they are coming, where they are emerging. You know, they're emerging mostly in the Northeast, um, the Upper Midwest, and West, um, but they are popping up everywhere. Definitely. We have some concentration around the edges of the country, but not only. Um, okay. Well, thank you. So uh, thanks for that snapshot, and we did move through quickly a couple of slides. Again, you can download all the slides at the end. So I have a question for you. Um, whether uh, Has the notion of an ACO come to mean something almost generic? Uh, if, if you're sort of, if it walks like an ACO and talks like an ACO, is it an ACO, or does it still mean something quite literal and specific? Well, it is, it's probably worth distinguishing ACOs with a capital A, capital C, capital O um, from, you know, the, the notion of accountable care. Um, I think, though, there are some common principles. First, the, the specific organizational definitions um, under the Medicare program are quite strict. Um, the eligib eligibility requirements entail having a legal entity, you know, that includes at least primary care physicians and advanced practice nurses caring for at least 5,000 Medicare beneficiaries and a leadership structure, you know, with a medical director um, that's capable of certifying compliance with the rules, submitting the needed documentation, reporting necessary quality measures, and receiving and distributed savings. And that legal entity has to be legally authorized within the state where the ACO is located. Um, the definitions that are emerging under private payers are are more flexible. There are more diverse kinds of arrangements, but they all share a, a few key principles. Um, you know, this entails organized care. This is about organized and coordinated care. So there has to be an organization that's capable of being accountable, being responsible for a patient's full continuum of care from inpatient to outpatient, from physician offices to hospice care. They have to be able to, to be able to help manage and navigate for on behalf of the patient their care across the diverse settings where patients are treated these days. Um, they are responsible for both improving the quality and slowing cost growth or ideally reducing costs. There has to be performance measurement in almost in every contract that I'm aware of, every, every private payer model. 
But in many cases, just as with the federal programs, there's an aspiration that these be flexibly, flexible organizational requirements so that you, we can welcome providers who are at any stage of development mm-hmm. from office-based practices in rural communities that have not had formal affiliations with any other entities other than their own office staff so that we can allow them to come together to coordinate care for the patients they serve all the way up to integrated delivery systems. Okay. The goal was to try to bring um, bring as many providers onto this path of moving toward accountable care, that is, being responsible for the patients you're taking care of across the trajectory of their experience. So I think it's, it's a both-and match. All right. Well, that's helpful. That is very helpful. Um, so one last question. I'm going to pick on you just a little bit more, and then I'm going to turn to our friends in uh, Tucson. Oh, man, you're being tough. <laughs> Tucson. So what do we know so far about ACOs as far as what's working, what's challenging, cost savings, patient care, and, um, you know, that's sort of helping us see that maybe this really is a step in a good direction here. And we'll throw up your, your slide here. Here, Elliot, the one that has not just the bad old days. Um, we'll put that one up there as kind of backdrop for you. What do we know? What 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 are we finding out? Yeah, sure. Well, well, that slide sort of summarizes how I think this new model is different from the old model, um, and probably. But but let me first talk about the empiric evidence that we've found. Okay. You know, there the folks at Harvard are carefully evaluating the Massachusetts version of ACOs, the Alternative Quality Contract. Um, and they've found so far, you know, dramatic improvements in quality by the many physician organizations that are participating under this new payment model for the commercial population uh, in Massachusetts. They've also found significant but quite modest savings in the overall cost of care for those patients. What's really important to keep in mind about the commercial population is that it's different than the Medicare population. These are largely healthy people. Mm-hmm. So the way they've achieved their savings in the commercial population is largely through helping patients prevent some complications, but those are going to be downstream costs. It's mostly through referring people more wisely um, to high-quality, lower-cost providers, avoiding, you know, very expensive, you know, very expensive facilities, um, reducing overuse of unnecessary procedures, and the savings are modest. In the Medicare population, we just published, you know, we just published a study in JAMA a couple of weeks ago that looked at the first medic federal version of ACOs, the physician group practice demonstration. That involved 10 medical groups across the country, ranging from, you know, physician networks to integrated delivery systems, and it was, but it was a shared savings model very similar um, to the ACO model that, that is now out there on the streets for, for, for Medicare. The findings, you know, from those studies, quality improved by for all. There were modest overall savings per beneficiary, but there were very substantial savings for patients who were sick. You know, this was we studied this by looking at what are referred to as dual eligibles, patients who have both Medicaid and Medicare. Therefore, they have substantial social needs. They have substantial mental health burdens. And these organizations achieved dramatic improvements in the care for that population. So... Savings were, were, you know, substantially larger. Um, and some of the systems, University of Michigan and Marshfield, both did remarkably. They redu- reduced overall costs, you know, overall costs for seven to ten, by 7 to 10%, and in the, in the dual population by up to 
And that's, you know, that's, that's not chicken feed. If everyone in the country we estimate were able to do that, we'd save $41 billion a year. Okay. Well, that's – yeah, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, I'm, <laughs> that's a great overview. Uh, I'm asking you to do the impossible here because there's so much going on. I'm sorry, but did I cut off a last thought there? No, I was going to – yeah. everyone should look at the, 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 the slide that has why I think this is different from the bad old days. Okay. But the key one – um, the we'll most go back important to that one. one. Okay. We'll go back to that slide. Okay, go ahead. That slide. Um, yeah. Because I think the most, you know, the, our prior experience, you know, my friends who are physicians working under the bad old days of managed care, was that this was about physicians frustrated by multiple contracts, multiple incentives, everything conflicting, um, and all the burden put on them. Um, the insurers just shifted the risk to them. The new days... Really, it is about physicians, hospital administrators, nurses coming together to work as teams um, as part of a single organization. You know, it can be loosely coupled or tightly coupled, but it's a single organization, a team trying to do better. And you know, with the support of the health plans this time. So it's, it's quite different as we see it starting to roll out on the ground. But the second thing I think we've learned in this, you know, I've learned this because I visit Tucson as much as I can to get away from the cold of the Northeast. <laughs> yeah. um, and it's really hard work. <laughs> right. Second thing. Yes. Right. Well, we're, we'll get more into that more because I think that's something that, uh, right, the, the Tucson folks uh, want, want to talk about as well. All right, Elliot Fisher, thank you so much uh, doing all this work and uh, studies. And what's interesting is that all this evaluative work will continue to unfold. And I just want to say when we showed that graph, uh, it was uh, from a JAMA article that came out on uh, September uh, 11th, 2012. And we can put the link in there as well uh, into our chat log there so you have it if you want to look and, at and it. And Don, you know, the editorial is yes. was in the same issue by Don Berwick. Right. So. ACO's Promise Not Panacea. And it's vintage Don Berwick uh, talking about why we have to look at, have a hopeful <laughs> perspective but also realistic. And there is no silver bullet. Darn it. Okay. So uh, thanks, Elliot. All right. I want to turn now to Pal Evans and John Friend, uh, very instrumental with what's been going on at Tucson Medical Center um, and Arizona Connected Care. So, John, uh, let me just start. Well, actually, let me just start um, with Pal. Tucson Medical Center, uh, as Elliot alluded to, was an early entrant, entrant into this ACO space. So what was going on uh, that you were such a forerunner uh, in thinking about that? Well, can you hear me, Madge, okay? I, perfect. <clears throat> Good. I just wanted to give a little bit of history because I think that would give you the, the answer you're asking for. But tell you a little bit about Tucson Medical Center. It's a 620-bed, not-for-profit, standalone community hospital. We have about uh, 700 independent physicians on staff, a very small employee group, about, about 15 uh, primary care physicians. Uh, we're fully electronic in Epic Shop, and we've been fully electronic since uh, June, the, June of uh, 2010. We're a Level 7 HIMSS uh, designation. In 2007, uh, the board decided to make a leadership change, and when we came in, uh, it became very clear that the future had to be a little bit different in that we had to start to develop relationships for, with physicians, with our independent physicians that was totally different than it had been in the past. So the first thing we started to do, because we were having some uh, problems with, uh, with supply chain, is we started to work with our orthopedists, our, our orthopedists, uh, the specialists, 
And we developed, uh, with John Friend's help, uh, co-management service line agreements, which has been very successful because it, it changes the level of conversation. In other words, we talk about quality. Uh, we're measured, the uh, the uh, LLC is measured on quality. The orthopods are actively managing the service line with the management team. So it's, it's been a very fascinating, very productive, and send a, sent a huge message to the community of Tucson. We've subsequently gone to and done uh, neurosurgery, neurology, cardiology, cardiovascular surgery. We're now moving into vascular surgery and general surgery. Uh, and this has been a very successful attempt and really has allowed us uh, to really have open and good conversations with our specialists who are always in, and in many parts of the country concerned about how ACOs are going to affect them. Uh, one of our loyal uh, primary care physician groups came to us shortly and said, you know, we're doing a gain share program with United, so you're not getting some admissions. What United was doing with them was uh, uh, gain sharing with them. They were able to really actively manage their difficult patients so they could prevent admissions to the hospital, and they're getting some gain share uh, out of that with United. So we thought, oh, this is interesting. So we invited United Healthcare of the West Coast uh, into the conversations. Uh, Tucson is a, doesn't have any big corporate headquarters, and they were having trouble uh, selling their products in Tucson. Uh, and so they actually looked back and said if we could work with a group that when it really looks back on it, uh, achieves a triple aim, they would be, be willing to work with us. They then actually started uh, with the push of IBM, seven patient-centered medical pilot, home pilots in the state of Arizona, uh, three in Phoenix and four in Tucson. Three of them were associated with us. So now we're having experience with gain share, with, with co-management service lines, patient-centered medical home. And at that point in time, we opened up some dialogue with the Engelberg Center for Healthcare Reform in Washington. And, of course, Elliot and Mark had been starting the, the collaborative in 2007. We're a little unique. We are one of the three originals. But we have... We are uh, uh, we're working with independent physicians, and you'll see uh, that uh, that that's a little bit different than employed physicians for sure. Our ACO is seventy five percent owned by physicians, twenty five percent of the hospital. If the hospital were doing this, we wouldn't be successful. We also created an MSO uh, that really drives the ACO. So you see in that uh, it's that slide is the press release about Arizona Connected Care. And that tells you about the collaborative. It tells you the number of physicians we have participating now. And the unique thing also that we have is three federally qualified health centers uh, involved with us uh, 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 going down this path. So that gives you a little overview that probably tells you that the reason we started down this path was because we believe going forward our relationships with physicians had to be business relationships, partnerships relationships, and a little bit different in the, than in the past. Okay, thank you so much, uh, Pal Evans. Really appreciate that. John, a uh, friend, uh, also uh, up to your uh, knees and eyeballs with all of this. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, what you have learned and what's working and what's been hard. Uh, Pal made the reference uh, to the fact that if the ACO uh, were mostly uh, all about hospitals uh, as opposed to physicians, uh, maybe wouldn't have a chance. So that's a leading comment that maybe you can pick up on. Go ahead. Sure, sure. I'll, I'll pick up on that, Madge, and, and a handful of other things that I picked up in the in the chat, okay. if you don't mind. Go, go right ahead. What, what has been successful for us uh, in this environment is getting substantial culture change, at least bought in at the conceptual level, um, and, I, and I'll get into that in a moment on networking. 
what's been difficult is this is still very largely to um, those who, who didn't buy in very early. This is still a conceptual or under construction model that we have. So um, the network, there's still a lot of doubt uh, and there's a lot of uh, alignment friction. And it's probably simply put, um, fear of physicians or other participants in giving up some control um, because the organization, as Elliot referenced, there's a formal organization requirement under federal law. And, and so that, that, that change in control over their own destiny, I think, uh, put together with the work requirements, particularly in a primary care physician base, causes some caution and, and slower movement than we would like. So as an in-construction organization, we're looking at early indicators. We don't have, uh, you know, the, the study on outcomes yet in Tucson other than in early, early uh, views of what we're able to do. So we're able now to touch patients directly, and we can measure that, but the full impact of the interventions we're putting in place won't be known for a while. So from a cultural point of view, getting people to buy into a program, which has some good definition, but that definition it, it remains supplemented week by week by week, even by CMS, um, is a difficult thing. Uh, what we've managed to do, I think, that uh, puts us a little bit um, in, in, in a special position here is we got through a lot of the technical requirements. We were able to organize. We were able to find a form of distribution that people, uh, th those who have joined us thus far, principally primary care, found to be rewarding and, and trustworthy. We have enough transparency, um, and we have a hospital, as Pal says, that did not insist upon a controlling or, you know, major influential role. It really stood up and said, we'll be part of a, you know, a better system of care, that working together we can do that, but, but if we insisted on hierarchy, we would probably fail. So it's, you know, some of the early on wins are, are those, the organizational movement. Things we still struggle with, availability of data, timeliness, you know, the novelty of the program quite candidly. CMS really de defining their rules, supplementing their regulations week by week, every two weeks. We're, we're in constant communication with CMS and we're learning more, um, you know, every two weeks about what this program is likely to look at. And then the last thing I would say is preparedness of commercial payers um, to participate in programs like this. So once the provider organization becomes prepared, it needs willing partners. And there's a lot of variability out there. So um, to, this, to this day, when we try to project ourselves, it can be a real struggle and not everyone um, is bought in. I'm curious, as we're looking at one slide that uh, talks about your critical and supportive associates and includes United Healthcare. you're obviously collaborating, as we've said, uh, in the pilot uh, program, the Brookings-Dartmouth program, um, Optum Insight, a development department there, and then you've, you are now part of the shared uh, savings program at Medicare. So uh, he here's a pop question uh, that I, I hadn't asked you ahead of time, but I hope you don't mind. Uh, would you advise or do you think it's going for broke to be engaged with a commercial payer and working on the Medicare program at the same time? No, actually, we think there's a lot of alignment between the two. Okay. Um, I think fundamentally what we're trying to do is, 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 is force change in, in the culture of the provision of care and manage that change. And those are two very, very difficult things. If you, 
if you were only doing that for a fragment of your total population, if you did it for only one payer or you only did it for Medicare, if you were piloting an effect, I, th I think at least in our marketplace that would have been a bridge too far. There wouldn't have been the momentum to gather capital to really, really get buy-in from all the constituents that you need. So I think having multiple payers is a critical requirement, at least in our community it has been. Okay, thank you so much, John Friend. I want to uh, maybe just get in two quick questions from me, and then we're going to open things up, and I see uh, folks are already having some questions as they're listening to all of you here on chat, and we'll get to those. Uh, quick question, back to you, <clears throat> pal, just for a moment. Um, one of the reasons, or as we planned this conversation, you and John and Elliot all spoke to me about saying that there was a lot that you felt that perhaps others uh, tuned in today on WIHI and others out there might be able to identify with with Tucson Medical Center in terms of the size of the hospital system, the uh, arrangement with independent physicians. Can you, Pal, can you speak to that? What is significant about that? Is that because this is something, the independence issue is one that ev many hospitals have to deal with. Yeah, I, you know, I think that's critical, Madge, and I think that's the, a little bit different in uh, the one uh, in our ACO as compared to a lot of others because we don't have a lot of employed physicians. And I think that one of the unique things is to be able to go around and work with our physicians and say, okay, here's what we're doing, uh, here's our thoughts on it, here's the program we're presenting, and are you willing to do this? And uh, uh, as John said, a lot of them are very skeptical because they've been uh, in, you know, and in, in remember the managed care days, as you alluded to early on, and are a little skeptical about going down this route. But certainly, as uh, I think the key thing for us has been to uh, get physician champions. Uh, we have uh, some primary care physician champions who are just are able to talk to physicians and say, look, I was very resistant to this. I'm now on electronic medical records. I'm now a patient-centered medical home, uh, and I believe this is the right thing to do. Uh, and so I think that the, the case is being made. As John said, it's still difficult. Uh, I, I will tell you that one of the questions you had asked me earlier or had asked John earlier was about uh, hospitals' role in this. I think the future... Uh, as you look at what we're trying to do is less hospital-centric, uh, I think uh, that's one of the reasons our hospital chose to do what it was doing, uh, how, it, how it created this. The other thing is I think that uh, if you look at all of the uh, attempts, at least early on, uh, uh, to, uh, to really uh, make a difference, it has to do with trying to prevent patients from being hospitalized and also trying to prevent patients who have been hospitalized to come back into the hospital. How do we manage these people, these patients better on the outside? And really, if you look at it, and, you know, I've told Elliot this many times, that it's the first time in my career, and i practice medicine since 1974, that things are lining up to do the right thing for the patient. So I'm, that's why we're very passionate about that. And that's a lot of the reasons we're able to say to physicians, look, this is what we think is happening, and we'd like you to be a part of it. <clears throat> Thank you so much, uh, pal. All right, Elliot, I'm going to just come back to you quickly, and then we're going to open things up. Um, I, there may be a number of things that you might want to uh, pick up on, so I hope I don't uh, steer you in another direction. But I'm curious. Uh, I, people did tick off a lot of reasons at the top of our program today about what some of their concerns were, why they maybe were on the sidelines kind of looking in. What have you found in speaking to people uh, seem to be one reason folks are sort of j just shy 
of, of going this route or are, are still very skeptical. And uh, maybe also pick up on this theme on the amount of work. Uh, several of you have alluded to work requirements. Uh, and, and, and it is hard work, you said, Elliot. Go ahead. Yeah, there, there, there's no question it's hard work. Um, we are trying to change the, the way that care is delivered in the United States. You know, patients experience deeply fragmented care. They do not have great help um, navigating a complex system. Uh, and we're asking physicians and others to now start to figure out how to um, keep people healthy and out of the hospital, to uh, identify people who are most at risk and figure out, put together the, the multidisciplinary teams that will help them manage their social needs, their behavioral needs, you know, the, the physical needs they may have if they have mobility issues. This is hard work. Um, so it is, it's a daunting change we're asking for. Um, so I think some are standing on the sidelines because they see this as, 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 as difficult. Um, I think the other thing is that we're, we recognize there's some insights that are starting to come out from the early work that look like if you really pay attention to that highest risk 5% of the population, as Powell was just referring to, there are substantial savings to be achieved. And, and that is done by integrating behavioral health, long-term care, post-acute care, uh, home health care services. You know, Iowa health care system, we just had a wonderful presentation on our learning network yesterday about the, the remarkable work they're doing um, putting together teams that include patients, include um, representatives of long-term care, of long-term care SNFs and post-acute uh, rehabilitation services, putting them all together in a team and saying, how do we get a common set of information? Actually, their work is highlighted on IHI's website, and people can go to that and download those, download um, the Iowa Health Systems tools. So it is the tension between knowing that this is coming and figuring out how to make the transition to start investing in it. I think those systems, such as Geisinger or others, who said, we're going to focus on initially on the highest the, the most difficult, most expensive 5% are finding that they can be successful. Okay. All right. So well, I think there's go ahead. promising yeah. data. Yeah. All right. Well, no, that's go good. I, there's so much. Uh, <laughs> I'm just thinking about all the, the issues people laid out at the very top. So uh, a reminder to everybody, you know, we are kind of hitting on some super complex issues in the course of our hour here on WIHI, and we do hope it gets you a little further along. Uh, we'll now turn to uh, your questions and comments and discussion, and uh, we hope you'll sort of follow up uh, also uh, when we get to the end of the show uh, with our guests in some way with the learning network uh, that Elliot will tell you about and also uh, with some of the resources. And we'll do future programs on this as well. All right, John, you want to just quickly remind everybody, uh, many of whom seem to know what they're doing already with chat, but uh, again, a reminder. Yeah, we have some WIHI veterans out there. So um, we do uh, just open up the chat for everybody. Um, just make sure that when you're addressing your questions to Dr. Fisher and Madge and everybody else that, uh, that you address them to all participants. Just switch the tab in the chat menu. Thanks. All right. Thank you very much. All right, I'm going to uh, ask this question. Could one of the presenters uh, address the issue of the ongoing ACO antitrust concerns that have been voiced by the FTC and the antitrust division, I guess, at the Department of Justice? I don't know how complicated an answer there is to that, but uh, Elliot, is that something that you're tracking? 
or has Oh, hold it. We have a lawyer on with us. Oh, a lawyer I'm on. I'm sorry. John Friend, I general counsel, forgive me. Yes, uh, any any comment on that? Sometimes it's not fun being the lawyer. Um, <laughs> I didn't know you. Elliot did. Go ahead. <laughs> I, uh, no, John helped write. John helped write much of the le- regulation by really providing tremendous guidance to DOJ and CMS. So okay, yes, that, we did. I'll tell you. I will. I will try to give a simple answer, um, and, and that is that in in our community. We are about uh, divided into quadrants, if you will, between what I'll call the competitive system. So first of all, understand that in Tucson, the risk of combinations that would be anti-competitive is, to this day, relatively low. What what we found, and we were early speakers, uh, they actually asked me at DOJ and FTC to speak in one of the earliest sessions on this because our point of view on this was really looking at all of the old guidance on antitrust issues that there was a, a there is a common theme around clinical integration which in the day was our theory and remains our theory today at how ACOs can succeed so we were through a series of meetings with FTC and, uh, and, and DOJ we were able to kind of voice our opinion on the application of the already existing rules and, and when they heard from us and others that really what we sought to do was was really amplify that clinical integration issue. I think they came out and provided some waivers and some guidance, which have loosened the rules a little bit around the kind of the environment, if not the rules themselves as it relates to antitrust. So now there are combinations that can occur that are not deemed problematic, and there are quicker pathways to go to to the regulators to determine whether or not a combination or some alignment between providers in a marketplace is disproportionately pro-competitive. So it, it yields great clinical integration rewards and, and does not present a, a large risk of um, anti-competitive activity. I, I think the other thing we need to know, though, is we're in the formative stages and those, you know, the regulatory positions will be refined over time. And if abuses occur and are identified, you know, there will be regulatory change. But I think right now our perspective is the rules are um, relaxed sufficiently and the guidance has been clarified sufficiently that particularly in our market, we have been able to move with some fluidity and, and, and the risk has been substantially lowered for us. Okay, thank you very much. If people want to follow legal issues, is there any fantastic um, <laughs> uh, website or anything uh, just to kind of stay tuned to any of this, John? Um, you know, I, I wish there was. Okay. I have okay. some close relations with firms that I, I frankly yep. use okay. counsel from a couple different areas. I'm not sure that anybody synthesized it. All right, there's an opportunity for somebody out there. Okay, thank you very much for that answer. Uh, I'm seeing, uh, I'm going to try and see if I can pull out some themes in some of the questions. Uh, maybe, uh, Elliot, from your slightly, you know, big view of all the different things you're evaluating, folks are asking whether or there are some good and strong examples out there of uh, making home care kind of part of the entity. Uh, there was also a question about skilled nursing facilities. Uh, anything you can say on, on that? score, uh, where that's part of the trend right now? Well, I, you know, I've talked to lots of leaders of ACOs. Um, all of them are realizing that to be 
effective at managing the care of especially complex patients, you need to be able to have good working relationships with post-acute care, whether it's SNFs or rehab hospitals, and with home health care services, with hospice. Um, so there's a very strong incentive for these organizations to identify good partners. Um, and, and Tucson has done some wonderful work on figuring out how to do a readiness assessment of whether a skilled nursing facility is is prepared to work with you as an ACO. And, Pal, you may want to say a little bit about that. Sure, Pal. Well, yeah, well, what we, had, uh, done, what we did, which, which I thought was really unique, is we sent out a questionnaire, a request for actually like a proposal, from all of the, uh, the long-term care and the, the post-acute facilities in Tucson. And we, this, this question, and then when the questionnaire, when it came back, we sat down with, all, with all, all the organizations and said, these are areas where we think you're weak in and we'd like you to improve that. And if you could really improve that, we'd be glad to uh, work with you. In other words, our goal was not to pick and choose. Our goal was to see how can we do a better job of providing post-acute facilities and telling them what they need to do in the community of Tucson. So we raised the level uh, of, of the care in Tucson. And one of the issues, and, and you know, I'm sure Elliot is alluding to it, is that there, the, uh, there, there's a lot of variation, and the other thing that's difficult is getting the exchange of information uh, because they are not, in many cases, as advanced uh, on, on the electronic side, on the technology side, that they are. So it, it does make it pretty difficult, and we need to get there for sure. Right, and this may, of course, uh, push push that along. Thanks a lot, pal. Um, you're you're uh, you're talking about electronic information. Uh, sort of leads me to a question that comes from someone named Lisa here, uh, wondering about how um, is data collection uh, being coordinated? Is there a sort of body of what would be considered ACO uh, data here, in addition to all the other quality information and metrics that must be followed? Um, maybe Elliot, quickly to you, if that's something that you're looking at, and maybe we can also ask what uh, Tucson is doing. Sure. Having good information that tracks patients across sites of care, identifies high-risk patients, um, is a key need that all of, all of the organizations participating in these programs need to have. And many of them are doing it um, by partnering with a payer or a medical service organization um, that has the capability of putting together, you know, electronic notifications from an emergency room, for example, so you will know when your patients, you know, have been seen in an emergency room the prior night. Um, combining uh, EHR and administrative data to identify high-risk populations. Th th putting the data together um, is a complex challenge. Most practices are not prepared to do it. Most EHRs are not effective at doing it. Uh, and Optum is, I mean, and, and our friends in Tucson have, have partnered with, uh, I think it's Optum, in order to do their data and analytics to support them. And, and Pal, you may want to talk a little bit more about that. Well, uh, uh, Elliot, this is John. I'll talk a little bit about that. Um, and, and this really kind of weaves together a handful of the issues. We're seeing a lot of questions about what I'll call the extended network of care providers. Right. Um, and the common bond in a community like Tucson is data and, and commitment. As, as Pal said, our, our RFI to post-acute was really aspirational. This is what, you know, we, we together could perceive as a great service, and, and so how can we work towards that? It, a, a big cornerstone of that is data exchange, but, but I think it's 
it's it's practical and real to say that right now the data exchange and, and data analytics capabilities that we have are in their infancy. Um, as Elliot says, EHRs weren't designed to aggregate data for those analytics purposes, particularly across a disparate network. So we continue to struggle with that, but we I, I just got a report last night that we had synthesized our first set of Medicare claims data, and from that we have identified five or six different categories of patients to engage directly. So when, when you think about what I'll call the low-hanging fruit here, and I know that's a trite statement, mm -hmm. but there's an awful lot of data that is now becoming available that does not require breakthrough technology that we have the capability to use today. And that's really, I think, in probably six months' worth of, of practical operations and development, we really, really grounded back on that issue. And that is, while, while a, an element of our organization will look at developing our technological capabilities, it, the, the you know, vast majority of our organization really needs to be focused on what the data that's available to us today can tell us and how do we take action based upon that. So there's a real practical way of approaching data, I think. At the same time, we all contribute to and hope for a, a more highly integrated data environment, which is still a two-com. Thank you very much. Uh, an interesting question here. Uh, maybe, again, it's another tool that needs to be created. Somebody is asking, it, kind of, how do you figure out uh, almost like a readiness uh, uh, sort of tool or template that would help you see, well, where might you uh, start? Uh, where, What is your readiness as an organization? If you're a physician organization or a hospital or whatever, how would you begin to evaluate your readiness to be part of an ACO? And what type of ACO, Elliot? Uh, I'm going to make. This, oh, go this, ahead, this Powell, was, Yeah, go ahead. I'm going to make a. I'm going to make a little plug on this for the Brookings Dartmouth Learning Network. Uh, <laughs> I'm actually the chair of a team that's doing uh, implementing implementing performance measurements across systems. And what Brookings Dartmouth Learning Network is doing, they have four work groups, and I'm co-chairing this one. And really, that's one of the things we're looking at. How do you really get information to people who are in different stages of ACO development? What do they need to have ready uh, to be able to, um, uh, to go down this path? What are the kinds of things and measurements that they need to be working on? You know, what, what, so that, it, so that what, we're, what we've done is we sent out a questionnaire to various ACOs in different stages of development, and we'll be presenting some of that information at next week's conference in Washington. But, uh, you know, this is a work that's being done that probably will be very helpful to people who, are, who want to go down this path. And, Elliot, you might want to comment on that. Yeah, so, Elliot, you know, we, 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 you never know who's going to tee up uh <laughs> Getting in this information about the learning network, but the time has come uh, to, to uh, yeah, to, uh, follow up on what Pal just said and and uh, tell people about this learning network. Go ahead. So you know, this was a group that we put together that Mark McClellan and I put together um, now four years ago as we started to maybe even five as we started to try to um, figure out how to launch how to get this model launched. Um, and the learning network was very much part of it. You know, led in, led with the help of. Tucson and some of our other pilot sites, um, but the learning network now has been running for three. You know, we're entering our third year of a full membership organization. Um, there are a bunch of tools that we've developed. Um, we have one of the work groups is focused on developing a readiness assessment tool for clinical transformation, so that organizations can know, you know, where are we on the difficult things we need to be able to under to be able to do to succeed as an ACO. So the, the, the learning network is one way of doing that. In terms of other readiness tools, we're not the only ones. 
Um, the American Medical Group Association has a readiness assessment tool focused on physician groups. Um, the Premier, um, the hospital supply chain um, and improvement company, has a membership uh, focused on its hospital members that can join their their learning network. Okay. Uh, and they have a readiness assessment tool. There's some common dimensions. We will be making our readiness assessment tools publicly available. You know, once they're up and up and fully vetted within the learning network. What you, what you get from joining the learning network is you get earlier access to the prototypes and, and a chance to work with folks like Pal and John um, who are leading these work groups that are really giving people a chance to put these, um, put these tools in place you know, and work side by side to learn how to do better um, in the near term. Okay, thank you. Well, that's really important, and we'll try. Thank you. We we shared the link in the chat uh, to the learning network uh, that uh, Dartmouth is. Excuse me, Dartmouth is uh, helping to run. Uh, Elliot alluded to some others, and we'll try and get those links in as well. Uh, a question, uh, maybe, Pal, I'll go back to you, or John, if you want to talk about it. It says, if one party's cost is another party's revenue, how do you motivate providers? to participate in shared savings models that will initially decrease their organization's revenue. Um, so uh, that whole, I don't know, that's that's the roller coaster. Uh, as things settle in or settle down, the hope is there's some shared savings, um, but it may not look that way right at the outset. Um, Pal or John? Yeah, this is John. I'll, I'll try that okay. one. Okay, um, okay. And it is, you know, maybe the million-dollar question for many, and that is um, some early work that was done at the hospital, and what I'll just use it as the example. The hospital is in a situation where under the Medicare Shared Savings Program, as for instance, as a particularly true as a minority owner, but in any regard would never be able to make up the revenue change based upon savings that are generated in the hospital environment. So it would always be a, a partial recovery of revenue lost. And so what we did is we, we took a very serious look a number of years ago at the revenue base of the hospital to determine what, how it could be optimized. And and we, we created a lot of business modeling around that. And, and part of it is, I think, trying to design the, the pro forma vision of what a hospital should look like. And, and this would be true of specialists as well. And so uh, one of the reasons we were um, um, perceived as positive by FTC on antitrust issues was our crazy theory of the moment was if you actually offer a better product measured in quality, efficiency, patient engagement, and outcomes, if you did that, you, you could um, achieve some advantages in your marketplace. So I, I think everybody has to go in knowing right. that savings don't it, you know, appear out of thin air and that somebody's going to have to do some complex analytics around how they can become a better participant in an ACO through something like this. Okay. Thank you very much. Let me, let me throw in a bit. Go uh, ahead, Elliot. Yep, go ahead. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, in wearing my Dartmouth Atlas hat, we estimate that the, estimate there's 30% too many hospital beds in the United States. Um, and if we're trying to make health care affordable for our children, one of the challenges for hospitals will be figuring out how to right-size themselves. Right. I know that many CFOs see you know, the razor-thin margins that they're operating under now as rather stressful. Um, I think we're all going to face a choice around whether we figure out ways of having healthier margins on a lower total revenue base, which is what these new models really offer, which may mean 
you know, figuring out whether some long-term care gets done in part, what part of the, the inpatient facility. What are the, what are the ways we can, you know, figure out which of the hospitals should, in our community should not expand or, you know, or might need to close. I, I, we, I hear conversations in, almost, in many communities that I visit um, where they recognize full well that there is a, there is a time coming mm-hmm. when one of us may not be standing. And I think what you see in Tucson is the decision to say we want to be at the front of this wave Right. Um, I heard a, a story from a, from a representative of a payer who was visiting a community in the hospital, and they said, we're never going to be part of the ACO, ACO world. We'll be the last one in the country to join it. Uh, six months later, they called back up the payer to say, we'd like to talk to you about forming an ACO contract with you because another hospital in our community has started to form an ACO. Right, right, right. Um, well, I think that, uh, you know, that's uh, that's why it's very, very interesting to be talking about this now because what the picture may look like in three months, uh, six months as we go ahead will be quite interesting. And if there isn't enough suspense about ACOs, uh, there's this thing called a presidential election coming up uh, in November. Uh, and... Uh, to kind of help keep a sort of steady as she goes and clear-eyed view of things right through the elections. IHI is convening a meeting on November 8th in Washington, D.C. We call it Out of the Blocks. We've got Tom, uh, former Senators Tom Daschle and Bill Frist on board, Don Berwick, Nancy Snyderman of NBC, Maureen Bisignano, Gary Kaplan of Virginia Mason, and a cast of other leaders from around the country who invite you to uh, talk with them about uh, the impact of the election two days, uh, just two days uh, uh, after the elections occur and sort of think about uh, the way forward for health care improvement. More information about that on IHI.org. All right, we're, we're heading to the top of the hour, so I'm going to just do a really fast runaround here from Tucson and back to New Hampshire and then to Cambridge here again. Uh, John and Powell, both of you, um, what would you say um, is, I don't know, at this point, um, any parting words, I'll kind of give it to you. Uh, one of the issues we didn't really have time to talk about today, but I think it will be one of the themes for future programs on this, which is patient engagement. What does all that look like in ACOs? I've certainly read a lot of articles and concerns uh, that certain things tend to recede while everybody is trying to sort of put these uh, the blocking and tackling going of ACOs. So um, I don't know if that's a theme you want to pick up on, but just kind of some quick parting ideas. First, uh, uh, yes, patient engagement is very critical. Our ACO has a patient engagement committee, uh, which is very active. I'm actually uh, next week in Washington at the Brookings Dartmouth Learning uh, Network going to talk to, um, uh, we're going to have a little roundtable on patient engagement. But I would also refer you to the Institute of Medicine uh, uh, did a paper on patient engagement that really uh, it was a meta-analysis that really looks at really how, how to do that because everybody is struggling with that. We have no good answers. Uh, we have some organizations that are putting up their scorecards on uh, to be tra- transparent, but patients certainly it, it hasn't been attracting patients. And so that's a big question that needs to be answered that we're all, all working on and all struggling with. We have, uh, we have uh, on our board, uh, we have people who are not physicians. We have people who are, uh, who are, who are Medicare recipients. So we think having people mm-hmm. on the board, uh, uh, are very, it's very important, uh, who are not involved in the healthcare system. All right. That sounds really good. A quick comment from you, John. 
Um, I, I, I would say the same thing. It's yeah. what we're, what, one of the interesting things we have going on here is a senior services department. It's something called we call Volunteer U, which is training uh, kind of peer advocates within the Medicare beneficiary pool. Um, and so to a degree, I'd call it kind of grassroots. Patient engagement begins one patient at a time, telling other patients there are some limitations or rules, at least, within the Medicare environment we have to follow. And so we're still trying to feel our way around, around those rules and the edges. Um, but we want to engage people because there still is a fear. You see it in the in the data opt out issue. We we like many had you know about a four or five percent opt out rate, which which is a little bit peculiar if you think about it, or, or a little bit disappointing in in that there was a, any patient out there that felt that having Medicare data in the hands of their provider was a concern, and yet it is. So there's a lot of education, I think, that needs to occur. That's really interesting. Thank you for mentioning that. Okay, well, my thanks to both of you uh, out there in Tucson. Hope to have you back and continue to learn from you. Elliot, parting words? I think, with, you know, we have a great opportunity. You know, we know the challenge face the, the major threat to the federal deficit is uh, rising health care costs. Um, we know that the reason our schools are going broke is because of the cost of employee of health care benefits. Um, I, don't, I know that accountable care organizations in their current form are not the final answer, but they are starting to help many organizations get on the path toward um, a, more, um, a model where we are providing the best care possible at the lowest possible cost for our patients and having an affordable health care system. It will take a lot of work by all of us to make it work. Okay. Well, thank you very much again, Elliot Fisher, John Friend, Powell Evans. Uh, really, really appreciate your knowledge. Uh, a lot of work behind the scenes here to get everybody's calendars to line up for you all to be together, but I can't be more appreciative, and we really thank our audience today as well for being interest. We hope you'll f- uh, interested, and we hope you'll follow up uh, with uh, this issue and also with WIHI. Next up on Friday, October 12th, I was talking about navigating the elections with a clear-eyed view. Well, we're going to sort of give you an early look at uh, maybe this gathering in Washington, D.C. with Don Berwick and Chris Jennings, um, a longtime healthcare policy analyst. Uh, you can check that out on our website right now. Uh, when you get off the program today, you're going to be prompted. If you want to get the chat and you want to get the slides, you can. We'd also love it if you'd fill out a brief survey. And a reminder that by tomorrow morning, you'll find an audio download of this program, as well as uh, you can get it off of iTunes. Any questions whatsoever, please email info at IHI.org. Always welcome also your suggestions of topics. The people who help make WIHI possible are Mike Sweeney, Jameson Case, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, and Matt Morse, and Dina Cox. It really takes a village here and then some, and our wonderful audience. We have some nice original music that opens and closes the show that we've had since the beginning of 2009, and it's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care, most of all. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Thanks for your participation. Good day, everyone.